I'm going to capture these beautiful things and have them kill each other. Yes. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's with a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, uh, because Kong Skull Island is coming out, we're looking at the original King Kong from back in the 1930s. So we're looking at King Kong and Grandiosity. And to do that, we have a new guest. We have Becky Belzeal from Audiences Everywhere. She writes for that site. We've had a fair amount of people from that site be on the show. So we're always happy to have more. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you tell us about Audiences Everywhere, maybe a piece or two you've written that people can go check out? Sure. So uh, Audiences Everywhere is kind of just a global conversation about film. Um, I am one of very few Canadians there. And usually I write about horror. So I guess a piece. Um, I recently wrote about Possession from 1981. It's one of my favorite films. It's a piece I'm proud of. So I'd probably recommend people read that. Nice. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Uh, so before I talk about the psychology, why don't you give us a couple film recommendations to go with King Kong and Grandiosity? Um, so I was really holding on to the theme of Grandiosity. And the first film that came to mind was The Master from 2012 mm-hmm. and uh, Island of Lost Souls from 1932-33. Nice. Okay. Island of Lost Souls, I haven't seen. Can you give us like a brief synopsis, maybe what the, what that's about? I think most people probably wouldn't know that one as much as The Master. Sure. Um, so it's a the story of uh, Dr. Moreau, who was kind of a mad scientist who was experimenting on humans and animals and kind of uh, merging them together. And he lives off on a secret island and does a lot of bizarre experiments. Yeah, Island of Dr. Moreau, Dr. Moreau I think that fits in with grandiosity. Yeah, that, that makes a lot yeah. of sense for sure. <laughs> All right, great. Thank you for those recommendations. Uh, we are going to take a break and I'll talk about grandiosity and then we'll bring Becky ba- back to talk about King Kong. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh Oh, so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, so it's time for our psychology section. So today we're talking about grandiosity. Um, If you've been listening to the show for a long time, this might sound familiar to you because when we did our episode on Citizen Kane, we talked about narcissistic personality disorder and grandiosity is a part of that. But this time we're going to focus particularly on that part of it. So grandiosity... Grandiosity refers to a sense of superiority that's totally unrealistic. It's a sustained view of yourself uh, as better than other people that causes you to view others with 
a certain amount of disdain or even see them as inferior. And you also see yourself as totally unique, that no one or very few other people have anything in common with me, so they can't understand me. So if you do understand me, you're really special, but most people can't. And it occurs in a lot of different disorders, not just narcissistic personality disorder, though it is chiefly associated with that. So within narcissism, there's actually a subtype called narcissistic grandiose. So, of course, grandiosity plays into there. And they've been labeled oblivious narcissist, and they have a lack of insight into how they affect other people. So it's not as if, oh, I see you as inferior and I'm going to purposefully make you feel bad. They're totally oblivious. They also tend to regulate their own self-esteem through overt self-enhancement. So I'm going to do things to make myself feel better and look better. So then my self-esteem will go through the roof. Um, they deny having any weaknesses. Um, they have they have a lot of entitlement. There's consistent anger when expectations aren't met by other people. And this, of course, creates this cycle of feeling other people are inferior because they haven't met those demands. Also, if people threaten their self-esteem, they tend to devalue those people. So if someone does something better than them or outwits them in a situation, they will tell themselves and other people, well, that person isn't worth my time or worth my energy. So then it doesn't threaten that that grandiosity. And there's also a lack of awareness between this dissonance between their expectations and reality. So some of us know as we look into situations like I, this is what I really want. This is what I expect, but I also know this is reality. So it might not happen. People with grandiosity in narcissism tend to not have that. So if you want to look at like uh, diagnostic interviews for narcissism, there's a section for grandiosity and there's like nine things they look at. One, they exaggerate their own talents. Two, they believe that they are invulnerable and don't recognize their limitations. Three, they have these grandiose fantasies. Four, they believe they don't need other people. Five, they overexamine and downgrade other people. Six, uh, they regard themselves as unique or special. Seven, they see themselves as generally superior to other people. Eight, they behave in a self-centered fashion. And nine, they behave in a boastful or pretentious way. Now, it also shows up in other diagnoses like mania. So in mania, grandiosity is more proactive and aggressive than in narcissism. They may boast of future achievements or exaggerate their own personal qualities, or they can begin to unreal begin to take on these ambitious undertakings that are totally unrealistic to ever to ever actually be successful and then they're they're cut down to size either by themselves or by others or just by reality now in something like psychopathy grandiosity also features um, in the psychopathy checklist which is which is kind of the best way we know to test psychopathy all right so we should be able to at least go over a couple articles uh, about grandiosity and of course a lot of this will be tied to narcissism because that's usually what most of the research is about so this first one is called the narcissistic mask and it's an exploration of what they call the defensive grandiosity hypothesis and this is from a bunch of authors, Thomas being the lead author in 2013. Okay, so in this study, they wanted to explore what they call negative self-schema using a learning task. So self-schema is just how you think about yourself. And this method has actually been widely used to assess self-schema in the context of many mood disorders like depression. And what they predicted was negative self-schema, as indicated by a greater recall of negative adjectives, will be associated with elevated narcissistic personality index scores amongst those scoring in the upper level of that NPI. Now, low to medium scores on the NPI are more likely to correspond with high self-esteem 
because like even like with any disorder grandiosity and narcissism a certain amount of it is actually okay and actually um increases your self-esteem and puts you in a better place rather when you get to the high levels it can kind of come around to the other side and actually make things worse so basically their hypothesis is that maladaptive narcissism that high level will be more strongly associated with remembering these negative adjectives so what they did is they got 232 undergraduate students uh, and the only real negative of this study is that 90% of them were women, and you're going to see a lot more grandiosity and narcissism in male participants. So, you know, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. So basically, the only things they gave them were the narcissistic personality inventory and the self-referential learning task. So basically what this was was a list of 30 person descriptive adjectives specifically derived for this task. So when they originally did this, when they originally created this task, they, they asked almost 2,000 undergraduate students to rate 844 terms for likable for likableness and familiarity. So the present study used the 15 most and least likable descriptive words from that final list. So for instance, the top three likable words were truthful, caring, and loyal. The three least liked words were hateful, abusive, and dishonest. So you get the point. So participants were assessed in groups. So they were in classrooms of groups of between 20 and 30. They, they had to work alone and to direct any questions to the person at the front of the room who was kind of the supervising investigator on the project. So the first task completed was this adjective task. So they were not made aware at this stage that they would later be asked to recall these words. And then they created and then they completed the narcissistic personality inventory. And then they gave them a bunch of other measures that were part of a separate study. So they don't really apply here. So after completing all these measures, which took about 25 minutes. So the really good thing about this, not only did they get to get all this information for other studies, but this is in our in our field, what we call kind of a distractor task. So we ask you, we show you a list of words, and then we distract you for a certain amount of time, and then we come back to see if you really remember it or not, because you're not as focused on those words. So then later, they were asked to recall as many adjectives as possible from the first task, regardless of whether they endorse them as like or unlike themselves. So uh, when you look at the sample as a whole, there's no association between having narcissistic traits and remembering these negative adjectives. But amongst those that scored in the upper 25% of the narcissistic personality inventory, narcissism scores were positively correlated with the recall of negative adjectives, even after controlling for age and memory. So what this tells us is exactly what they thought they were going to find with, a, with their hypothesis, is that just because you have traits doesn't mean you're going to be grandiose or have these narcissistic ideals and see things as negative. But if you are in that upper level where it becomes maladaptive, then you are going to recall those negative adjectives and have – even though it seems it seems to go against logic, right? If you're narcissistic, if you have grandiosity, you think highly of yourself. But really what it is is a defensive technique because you don't feel you are better or even as good as others. So if you're in that upper upper quarter, that upper 25%, you are probably going to remember these negative self-referential adjectives. So kind of cool that, you know, as with any disorder, like a certain amount of it is fine, but too much of it is way too much. 
Okay, so the last article we're going to look at is actually a Korean study from 2016 about the emotional characteristics of narcissists with either grandiosity or vulnerability, which are kind of the the two opposite, although it's a little misleading because there is vulnerability in that grandiosity. It's just a little bit hidden and you got to there's like a there's a back entrance to, to kind of getting to that vulnerability. This is from Yang and Quan, as I said, in 2016. So what the study wanted to do was to empirically identify the emotional characteristics of this narcissistic grandiosity and vulnerability using a different measure that assesses this wide range of narcissism. Because I think when you look at some of the tests for narcissism, they're very general and very vague, and we need we need better instruments here. So uh, they did a bunch of studies. The first study they took the pathological narcissism inventory, and which which measures this pathological narcissism, and they translated it into Korean, and then they validated it. So we're not really going to go over that because that's not super interesting. It's just taking an English test and putting it into another language and making sure it still makes sense. Now, study two was conducted to examine the emotional characteristics of people with this grandiosity or this vulnerability. The grandiosity subscales showed um, a lot of positive correlation with positive affect, but showed no significant correlation with depression or negative affect, which is interesting because I think if we if we had these same people take these tests, you know, months later or when they're in a bad part of their lives, when the grandiosity is kind of getting in the way, you might see more depression. But on the other hand, the vulnerability subscales showed positive correlation with depression and negative affect, but negative correlation for positive affect or good affect or mood. But one thing that both of them showed positive correlation with is anger. Um, So whether you're vulnerable or you're grandiose, you are going to positively correlate with an anger trait. So they did further analysis and they divided these these people into the grandiose, grandiose group and the vulnerable group based on their levels of on this test of grandiosity score and vulnerability score. And what they found was the grandiose group showed more positive affect than the vulnerable group, vulnerable group which isn't a big surprise. The vulnerable group showed higher levels of depression and negative affect. However, there was still no significant difference in the trait anger score observed between groups. So it's not just individuals and we're finding the average, but if we average these groups separately, we're still finding the same thing. So what this research is finding is it's suggesting that the emotional characteristics, how people act out with with their narcissistic tendencies will vary according to these two forms of narcissism. So if you're someone who is grandiose, you are going to show this positive affect all the time and maybe drive people away. But if you're a vulnerable narcissist, you are much more likely to get depressed and have negative affect. But you're going to react in similar ways because that anger trait is always going to come out. And I think actually you can see a little bit of this in one of our main characters of Carl Denham in King Kong is when people get in his way or tell him he can't do something, he does tend to react both angrily and in a way that he thinks other people are less worthy of being around him and and he's more than willing to sacrifice people or put people in dangerous situations. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. When we come back, we will bring Becky Belzeal back to talk about King Kong. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. 
What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. We're back to talk about the movie. So King Kong um, from, I think, let's see, what year is this actually from? I don't want to get that wrong yet. 1933. So this movie uh, holds a special place in my heart and probably always will. We always like to talk about kind of our history with the movies on the show. And for me, this is like, for me, this is the movie that that really, it says movie magic to me because I saw it when I was a kid. It was one of my dad's favorites and I watched it over and over again and I remember just being totally wowed by it. So it's very different to watch it, of course, as an adult rather than as like an eight-year-old child. Um, but it's probably, it's a movie I have a hard time uh, maintaining any kind of distance from. So I think it'll be interesting to have this conversation. But what about you? What's your history with the original King Kong? Uh, this was my first time seeing it. it was for this podcast actually. Oh, okay, so very different. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> I have a shameful lack of knowledge of early film. Um I was one of those people who wouldn't watch anything if it was black and white for a long time. <laughs> uh so I missed a lot of really good stuff. Uh this time watching it, I wasn't sure what to expect. Um it's very of its time, but I was also super impressed with it. Uh Great. I don't know, the stop motion was really interesting. I laughed a lot, but I was more impressed by what they did in that time. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, we'll talk about with production value, there's some laughable moments, especially for a modern audience. But, you know, I think it's always, I mean, anything, honestly, before, like, I don't know, like 1975 and prior, like you have to, you have to remember its time and kind of what what they had to work with back then. So I think, so I think there's definitely some moments that are laughable, but still, like you said, like really impressive that they managed this in 1933. Like there, there've been a bunch of King Kong movies. And honestly, this one's probably my favorite. I mean, we have, we have, you know, this one in 1933 and then uh, they made, oh, let's see, 1976. They had one with Jessica Lange in it. Uh, And then of course, Peter Jackson's, you know, epic four hour, uh, version of King Kong, which I actually like. I that that one is fun to me, but I think this one is probably a better movie. So let's uh, let's jump into the direction of the film. So it's uh, it's kind of it's interesting. If you look on IMDb, there's some uncredited directors: Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodzak. Um So what did you think of the direction of King Kong overall? Anything stand out to you? Um, I thought it was super interesting that it's almost autobiographical in nature. Um, I know the director himself was the kind of person who he went to the jungle often. He was always filming weird animals. I mean, things that were weird at that time, like tigers and gorillas. <laughs> right. Uh, he had, I, I read something that said he, he was really interested in Komodo dragons and gorillas. And his plan was to go to Africa, capture these gorillas, bring them to Komodos and, and have the two animals fight. Hmm. Uh, 
It sounds like a 12-year-old boy's greatest fantasy. I know. Like, I'm going to capture these beautiful things and have them kill each other. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's great that that didn't happen because that's how we got King Kong was, I mean, someone shot down that weird animal abuse dream. Uh, But I think that, you know, it's a story about himself, about um, finding something nobody else has done before and just impressing the world with that. And that's what really stood out to me. Yeah, I mean, it even stands out from, like, the title, of course, is King Kong, but if you watch the movie, the title is actually, you know, King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Like, that's the focus, is finding something no one has ever found and amazing people. Like, that is definitely the focus of the film and the focus of many of the characters. I think the thing that stood out to me most as far as the direction is there's a bunch of scenes we talked about kind of laughable production value stuff, but they have some scenes that are very obviously, like, kind of superimposed and then you have the actors walking in front of it and kind of pretending to interact with it but it was like weirdly convincing like there are these scenes where they're like walking over this this dead dinosaur and like it was actually really well directed and really well acted considering what they were working with so i was really impressed with with how good that looked in 2017 from something that's you know damn near 100 years old at this point yeah it looked better than i expected right yeah I also think they did a good job with that um, that reveal of of the of the throne, for lack of a better term, where where Faye Ray is going to be going to be tied to. Like that is a nice uh, that is a nice suspenseful reveal of that. Like before we get to King Kong, like before we get to the the monster of the movie, like just seeing the sheer size and scope of something that that they have built for him, I thought was really, really impressive. Uh, and the other thing that stood out to me is the use of fog in this movie, which is always a really good trick if you if you don't have the money to shoot on location and you don't have, you know, the the ability to do certain things, if you put, you know, your main characters in fog, I think it creates the suspense. It builds the movie a little bit and gives this kind of creepy feeling of you don't know what's kind of outside these borders, which is, I think, a theme that keeps coming up. And like, you know, there's definitely some problematic stuff with with race and gender here. Um, they are definitely going into kind of the quote unquote savage land. But I thought the way they use the fog in here was was really good, too. Yeah, because you have no idea of scale when there's fog. You don't mm-hmm. know the distance or how big anything is. So it's kind of like an ultimate reveal. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else stand out to you as far as the direction in this film? I don't think so. Okay, nice. Yeah, I was I was actually, you know, I was a little wary of watching this again. I haven't watched it in a few years and kind of since I've started doing the podcast. And I think you, you know, when you do a podcast or you're a film writer, you start to get a lot more picky. You start to notice things that you might not notice before because you're trying to find kind of talking points and, and things to bring up. So I was worried like a movie from the 30s, this is really not going to hold up. But most of it really did. Like like I mentioned, there are some, you know, of course, anytime you have a movie from the 30s and you're dealing with women or with different different racial uh, different racial backgrounds, you're going to you're going to find some serious problems for sure. Um, But kind of taking that out of out of the equation for a moment, like I thought I thought the rest of the movie really held up well. And yes, the acting style, which we'll talk about, is definitely more presentational, but not to the point where it bothered me. What about you? I had a tough time with it. Um, Like I said, I'm not super well versed in film from that time. But I mean, you know, there's so many things that are so kitschy about it in that time sure you know, the kind of the transatlantic accent the kind of ridiculous use of hands when you're acting <laughs> a lot of the writing bothered me i remember thinking like okay uh 
maybe when I see the gorilla, like I'll be okay with this. <laughs> but uh, like at first I was definitely like, oh, this is a little painful to watch a lot of these comments being made about women. And Oh, yeah. You for know, sure. Yeah. Like oh, there's uh, a but, kind of introduction of like, oh, well, you can't have women on a boat. You know, like, oh, okay, we're going to Yeah, go it's there. like, oh, women, they're just a bother. They can't help it. And she's like, well, anyway, I, I like you. I'm like, yeah. oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't help thinking, like, kind of thinking of the acting. Bruce Cabot, who played uh, who played Jack or John Driscoll in, in the in the cast list, who is the character who's kind of like, ah, women, they're such a bother, of course, until he sees the beautiful blonde and then everything's okay. <laughs> um, his character, yeah. like, I couldn't stop thinking of, like, he is the kind of what we would see now is kind of the Harrison Ford type. Like I, I kept yes. thinking of him as I was watching this movie, this man who probably, you know, in terms of like, if you look at Harrison Ford's most famous roles in terms of the way he treats women, not so great, you know, and kind of has that yeah. very gruff exterior. But, you know, by the end of the film, he, you could tell he actually cares. And I thought of that a lot as I was watching Bruce Cabot's portrayal, who I, I really liked. I really liked his portrayal. It was hard. It is hard to get past that, that opening scene. I think I think after that you could tell that he really cares about Andero, but that first scene is yeah. definitely a rough one. I would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think he watching him. I'm thinking like, oh, I know lots of guys like this. You know, like <laughs> oh, that's so today. sad. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not wrong. They are out there no. for sure. Yep. Uh, so speaking of uh, Anne Darrow, Faye Ray's part, what did you what did you think of her performance? Was it did it ever get less difficult to watch after that kind of like she does? She is a little bit in that scene of kind of a doormat, like kind of like, oh, you hate me. That's OK. I like you. Uh, but what about as the movie? I mean, she's definitely the prototypical damsel in distress. Yeah. Um. So I didn't change my opinion on her until I watched kind of some special features and learned mm. more about her. Uh, I thought she was excellent at screaming. Great sure. scream, yes. <laughs> yeah, she's a really great victim. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think I need to watch more of her work because I don't. I don't want to like belittle her and say like that's all she w- was. I've heard her name a lot. I just haven't seen her in anything else. You can say that's all she was here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It sort of was. That's all she was. But I don't know. I was way more interested in the creatures, I think, than the people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I thought my my favorite moment, honestly, with uh with Faye Ray is there's a scene where uh, Carl Denham, the the director, the the kind of who we'll talk about, I think a lot when we talk about grandiosity, um, when he's kind of guiding her in this in this process of getting her to like see the monster before the monster's there, they do like a little screen test, and her performance yeah. there, that scream, I was like, oh man, this is still really effective, and her physical portrayal is still really effective. I think. When she didn't have to work with this, you know, uh, with the special effects and the the stop motion, I think she's actually much better in those sequences than she is later in the movie. And I think that's it's interesting if you watch later versions of King Kong, it's kind of the opposite because I think CGI and special effects have have grown so much at this point that they're probably a little bit easier to work with than they were back in 1933. I totally agree. I thought she was strongest in that scene. And she really pulled off that kind of like, oh, I'm just a poor homeless girl. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So speaking of um, of Carl Denham, played by Robert Armstrong, to you, mm-hmm. I, I always struggle with him. To you, is he a likable character in any sense? Did you bond with him at all? Or is he – to me, he's almost the villain of this piece rather than the protagonist. Yeah, I can see that. I think he's a little bit enchanting just in his like boyhood wonder and drive. Mm. 
but that's because I'm safely sitting on the couch. I'm not the girl he <laughs> basically kidnapped. Right. Uh, hey, person who can't eat, he... who can't fend for themselves, come with me exactly. on this trip. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> I was just mostly impressed that he convinced all these people to go somewhere they didn't know where they were going. They had no right. idea what they were going to see. I'm like, well, he must be an impressive man. I mean, <laughs> if he pulled that off. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely charming. I think that's yeah. that's definitely a part of his personality, and you can see. I think the actor does a great job job at portraying that that kind of when someone is charming, even if they're saying things that you might not necessarily agree with, you can understand people going along with them. You get swept up in that excitement and in that charm, and I think he that definitely comes across for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So you said earlier you had problems with the writing. So you want to go into any of that? What what were your issues with the with the writing of the film? I mean, most of it was just gender issues, especially, I mean, the scene where uh, where John says to her, well, I guess I love you. And she says, <laughs> she's like, but you hate women. And he says, you aren't women. I'm uh, like, whoa. Uh. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't make you feel special if some, someone said that to you. <laughs> it's okay. Maybe if I was very young and I thought, that's right, I'm not women, I'm special. That's right. But, uh <laughs> Uh, it definitely, I was like, oh, God, 1930s. Just remember, it's going to yeah. be okay. Yeah, you do have um, to kind of chant that to yourself as yeah. <laughs> it goes on to yeah. get past it. Yeah. I liked some of the uh, the cheesy humor that came out of it. You know, I know there's a scene where they're like, is he crazy? And the other guy says, oh, he's just enthusiastic. And I thought, I'm going to just start describing myself that way. Yeah, I'm not Whenever crazy. Just, oh. I'm enthusiastic. I like it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of, you know, it's very timely. I liked it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple things I liked. I really like the um, the kind of pre-introduction of, of Denim, where you just have these two characters who you basically don't see much the rest of the film talking about who Denim is and kind of how wild he is and the things he does. So you know kind of what to expect from him even before he ever comes on screen. So the second mm -hmm. he's there, you know, like, oh, we should expect something a little different out of this guy. And I liked the way they did that. And I also thought pacing-wise, this movie did a great job. Like, especially for a movie from the 1930s, there was never a moment where I felt like, oh, this is moving really slowly. I don't know if I can get through this. Like, it's a nice – I mean, I think the movie's like an hour and hour and 45, hour and 50 minutes, and things move along at a pretty good pace. And that's pretty impressive because I think – I don't think Kong shows up until halfway through the movie. And that yeah, is the title. Quite a while. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we talked about, you know, uh, we talked about, you know, race and sex in this movie. Of course, we have the kind of not only do we have the quote unquote savages on the island, which is just it's hard to watch. You know, you got like these, you know, dark skinned people coming and kidnapping the fair white woman and, you know, you know, sacrificing so her to a god. Yeah, it's like, oh, man, I just got to get through this. And then you have the really bad Asian stereotype. Um, oh. You know, it's, you know, peeling potatoes and with the, you know, ri the ridiculous accent and everything else. Yeah. The only thing I liked about that character is they did give him at least a moment. He's the only one who could who could see what was happening when when she was about to get kidnapped. Like he was the one who warned everyone on yeah. the boat. So I was glad like, oh, look, he's not a lot of times with ethnic stereotypes like this. There won't be a lot of intelligence shown in those characters. So I was right. glad that was there. But it's still – I mean it's about as awkward to watch as, as you know, as Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like it's that level. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Here we are again. And, and again, <laughs> yeah. you're like 1930s, 1930s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
the other thing I noticed is the, in this movie, you know, we talk about when we talk about movies, this whole idea of show don't tell, right? Like you don't want to mm-hmm. just spit a bunch of dialogue at the audience so you explain what's going on. And there is a little bit of that here, especially that scene where there's all this fog on the boat and earlier in the movie when they're looking at the map. But I thought it was actually really well handled. There wasn't a moment where I was like, oh, God, this exposition. Stop it. Like it actually it actually ends up building the tension because our creature isn't going to show up for quite a while. We need to build the tension and our characters don't know what this creature is. So you can't talk about Kong. You have to talk about kind of the mystery and and where they're headed and how they don't know what's going to be there when they get there. And I thought they did a good job there. Yeah, because that's what's attractive about it is, I mean, I sort of could believe, I don't know, sometimes I think today it's a little sad that the whole planet has already been discovered Yeah, and that I can never go to space and discover anything. I'm just in a weird place where I can't discover anything new. So I definitely see um, the drive and the interest and I could see why somebody would dedicate their whole life just to finding this little island that they heard about uh, through a rumor in some random country. You know what I mean? Right. I thought that was super exciting. And I thought, yeah, this is great. Like, I can't wait. I already know what King Kong looks like, but I found myself right. being like, oh, I can't wait to see it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. a question I wanted to ask you, because, of course, I cannot gain any distance from this. But the one of the one of the things I've heard from people who aren't big fans of this movie is like you have the first half of this movie where they're searching and searching and then Kong shows up and then it becomes this kind of one scene to the next of Kong fighting random creatures. Like it's just, it just Mm kind of goes and there's no, there's not a lot of arc to it. It's just like, okay, what's next? Uh, So how do you feel like that was handled? Did you ever find yourself bored or wondering when we were getting back to the human story or did that stuff work for you? That was actually my favorite part of the movie was seeing all of the little fights with all the dinosaurs and stuff. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I, cause I felt that the writing was lacking the, I, I'm not interested really in in what the humans were doing. I just wanted to see animals fight, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the <laughs> thing. It makes me wonder, like, you know, I remember seeing that very long Peter Jackson version and I remember seeing the runtime before I saw the movie and I was like, how? Like, because nothing, I yeah. mean, not nothing happens. I mean, that's a little harsh, but really like what happens? They grab Anne, they go on a trip, they find it, you know, they find out about Kong, she gets kidnapped, they go rescue her and then they go back to New York. That's it. That's the whole that's the whole plot. There's not a lot of human drama going on. Like I felt like they tried here to have the human drama. I they tried to do a little bit. I think of a misdirection with the the love story with Anne. I think I think originally you're supposed to think she's probably going to end up with Denim when he first meets her and then the Jack yeah. character shows up and I I like that. I like that little bit of misdirection because it would have been simpler to just have Jack be a, a side character. Uh, but they kind of made him the kind of man of action, the kind of Indiana Jones type character. And that stuff all really worked for me. Um, but, you know, you're right. I think I think it's hard to – because of the way films were made back in the 30s, I'm sure it was much more difficult to get things like this produced. And you, you know, you want to see the money on screen, right? If you're going to spend all this money to make a monster movie, you want scenes – with the monsters and you know you got pterodactyls you got t-rexes you got you know all kinds of things and that stuff i really love and sometimes i wonder like oh maybe that's the the 10 year old boy in me like that first watched (laughs) this movie and i'm like it's a it's a dinosaur like this is the best thing ever no there were dinosaurs i when i was watching i thought nobody told me that there were dinosaurs i would have watched this a long time ago if i knew that (laughs) becky's Uh, like i've been lied to what (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, once I found out why there was dinosaurs, it suddenly it made it even better to me. But um, I haven't seen any King Kong movies Mm -hmm. at all. So this was 
a really great experience. When I told people I was going to watch it, they were like, oh, you're so lucky. I wish I could watch it for the first time again. So I think I came into it with like a, a fair level of respect. Mm-hmm. But um, it surprised me that I cared a lot more about what was going on with the beasts than the people because I'm generally uh, very... Uh, personal dramatic type person like I care way more about dialogue and what's going on but I felt it was lacking and uh, I just really like the stop motion yeah I mean if you look back at kind of you know who the people are in this movie they're all very archetypal like there's not a lot Mm -hmm. of subtlety here you have Carl Denham who's like the go-getter right who doesn't care much about people and it's just like I gotta I gotta get what I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do and then you have Jack who is very much the the stoic adventurer and then you have Anne who is the damsel in distress so there's not a Hmm. lot of room for subtlety here it's very much just like okay you stand there and play your parts and let's let the the creature effects do the work here and I think I think that was probably that was probably purposeful I I think and I think that's okay but I think if you if you make that movie now it's interesting because we look back and we're like, oh, it's the 1930s, so this was great. But if you made this exact same movie now just with better special effects, I'm not sure this works because I think oh, we expect a little more. I mean, not just the sexual and racial politics, but we expect more from our characters than I think we're getting here. Yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the production values. There should be plenty to talk about here because the whole second half of the movie is production value. Um, mm-hmm. So – was there, you know, you kind of talked about how it's impressive and laughable at the same time. Is there a particular scene that was laughable to you and a particular scene that wasn't, that was just like kind of impressive on its own? Um, so there's a scene where he's fighting a T-Rex. The and, best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's like pulling open his mouth to kill him. Yep. And I was actually watching that being like, oh my, oh my God, this is very violent. <laughs> I was bothered by it almost. And then, you know, he beats the T-Rex and it's laying there and all this blood is just coming out of its mouth. And I thought, this is so bizarre. Like, I wonder what it was like to watch this for the first time. I felt like a little, uh, not shocked, but definitely um, affected Mm -hmm. by some of the fights. Uh, Things I laughed at a lot were any close-up scenes with Kong, like eating a person. So funny. (laughs) Uh, His his blank stare. I I was reading, someone said, you know, you feel... uh, empathy for the gorilla i did not feel that personally people Mm -hmm. said to me this is the most beautiful story of unrequited love i did i didn't care (laughs) i just wanted to see him eat people and throw (laughs) things around and anytime he would like pick off uh ann's dress and smell it and his little nostrils are wiggling oh (laughs) came (laughs) over so good yes yeah Yeah, I totally agree with you on the T Rex scene. I actually put something on Twitter as I was rewatching this. Like, what was the what was the movie moment when you were young that like really affected you and and got you into movies and was like, oh, this is so amazing! I have to see more. And for me, it was that T Rex scene. That was that's the scene that really affected me. And I was like, I got to see more. This is so amazing. And I think yeah. you're right to call it disturbing. It really is. I remember like vividly seeing this as a kid and he essentially, you know, breaks its jaws apart with his bare hands and you, you know, you hear the cracking. I mean, it is really disturbing, especially, you know, for for a child, it's extra disturbing, but even watching this as an adult, it's like, it's really vicious and it's really brutal. And I think it's needed because if you don't have that moment, then you're not worried for Anne at all. You know, no. yeah, granted, it's a giant gorilla. It's scary. But now you can actually see what it's done to other creatures that are gigantic. And like what's scarier, yeah. especially, you know, when when we were kids, what's scarier than a T-Rex? Like a T-Rex is like 
the apex predator, right? Like it's if you should Absolutely, be scared of anything, yeah. it's it's the damn T Rex for sure. Uh, and I think yeah. you're right. There's there's a lot of moments. Anytime they have a close up on his face, anytime they show him kind of walking from behind, like it, you know, you're like you have these moments, like oh wow, stop motion. Here we here we are. <laughs> oh god. Um, but again, 1933. Um, but you brought up the idea of this being a story of unrequited love and. It's interesting because I remember seeing this as a kid, like I was like, nah, I don't I don't see that. You know, this is a monster movie and that's that's all it is. And they definitely tried. And I think I think the the technology just isn't there (laughs) for us to feel that. I think you get that more. Of course, you haven't seen these movies, but you'll you'll get that more in later King Kong movies. Um, But they really try and sell it, of course, with that last scene, the whole like, you know, it wasn't the airplanes, beauty killed the beast, that whole line. Like they're trying to sell that love story. But because there's such a limit in facial expressions and and movement that the monster can make here, that Kong can make, I don't think it's really possible for us to really feel that unrequited love. I think we feel more than anything just fear. You know, for Anne, not so much empathy for him. So I totally agree with that. Um, Yeah, even when you were saying, you know, beauty killed the beast, like I just rolled my eyes. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sure that's exactly what they're going for. That's that's good. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to blame my horrible line reading for that. That's (laughs) (laughs) oh, beauty killed the beast. Whatever. (laughs) I was actually really surprised that I enjoyed a lot of the sequences on the boat. Considering that stuff is all build up, um, but I liked I liked the kind of uh, uh, you know the the fact that we're on this boat and it's 1933, so you're not going to have a lot of like great shots of like rolling waves, but it still did feel convincing enough that we were on a boat. Like it didn't feel so much like a set. And I think with any honestly, even modern movies, when you set them on boat, I mean, we reviewed of all things the perfect storm on this on this show. And there's some scenes in that that feel so false because there's so much there's so much special effects and so much like of a limited set. And here, like it actually feels like we are with these people on this boat. And I think it helps that we have very few scenes on land before we get to Skull Island. Yeah, and I was very confused about the passage of time in this movie. Yes. I wasn't sure how long they were on the boat. I thought at first when when uh, they fall in love or whatever, I was thinking like, <laughs> wait, how long have they been on this boat? Like, is this realistic? <laughs> 25 thought, minutes. Yeah, That's yeah. Like, we're in love. <laughs> like, don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I also really liked uh, the music. When they're kind of waiting for Kong, I thought the music was was really well done here. I it really builds up that suspense, which you really need. And all I kept thinking when they opened the gates, um, and I don't know how I've seen this movie so many times and seen Jurassic Park a bunch of times. I don't know how I didn't like recognize this. This is just this is exactly what what Spielberg was doing with his opening gate sequence where you're about to go into this like land that you've never seen before. And then, of course, you have a Kong versus T-Rex fight. I'm like. I don't know. I feel like an idiot. I don't know why I didn't notice this before, but this is <laughs> Jurassic Park, King Kong. There is definitely a tie here. So I, I loved, honestly, some of my favorite moments of the movie are the in-between moments, the moments when you're waiting for something to happen. Like, even though the racial politics aren't great, the scene where, you know, we have our white explorers kind of hiding and watching everything that's going on and seeing the mystery of this new place. Like you said, we don't really get that opportunity much anymore to like mm. – to find something new to, to sort of find something totally foreign and totally other, which brings up its own set of problems politically, but like to actually see that and to see it through their eyes, I thought was, was really impressive and handled pretty well. 
Yeah, definitely sparks the imagination. I was thinking like, what's going to happen? Are they going to attack or like, or are the white people just going to massacre everybody? I right. mean, that's not unheard of. Right. So we have done that before. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, where the film I think loses me is actually once they bring Kong back to New York. That's that's where I I kind of thought like, oh, here we go. Um, but I, I know that's like people's favorite part. I mean, well, yeah, it's interesting when you talk about movie history, right? You see yeah. Kong on the Empire State Building with planes buzzing around him. So it's interesting that as on a first viewing now, you're like, nah, I'm not interested. Let's go back to the jungle. Yeah, I wanted to be in the jungle more. Yeah, I feel like I, I kind of agree and kind of disagree. So uh, I'll start off with how I agree, I guess. I, I think it, it doesn't work because I think in a locale where we know what it looks like, it's hard to hide the special effects of Kong, right? He's on the upper mm-hmm. state building. There's, you know, there's trains, you know, there's a, there's a you know, bunch of people paying a bunch of money to see him. Whereas when he's in the jungle, it's like, oh, well, this is his habitat. So I can, even though I know it's ridiculous, I can believe that this is kind of real in some way. Whereas if you put him yeah. in this kind of metropolitan area, it's like, eh, this doesn't really work for me. Um, but, yeah. I th- but I think what does work for me, I think the, the Empire State Building stuff works much better for me than the rampaging through town works for me. Uh, I think it does a good job of of giving us some scale of Kong. Like, we know he's huge, but when he's surrounded by jungle and in this place we don't understand, it's hard to, like, really understand. But if you've been to the Empire State Building, you know how big that top section is. And then you see you see this character there. You're like, oh, my God, this is this is drastic. And I think that's why that mm-hmm. stuff probably works better in modern films because, you know, I think the stop motion really stands out in the kind of bright lights of the city where it doesn't in kind of the darkness of the jungle. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know, I mean, I respect the scene. Obviously it's a huge famous scene in cinema. Um, it's just, for me, I just thought, Oh, like this is, he stands out even more Yeah, and it just, I don't know. I was kind of bored, to be honest. Yeah, I think that scene, I would agree. I feel like that scene goes on too long. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think there's a way, to, there's definitely a way to tighten that up, uh, which unfortunately, if you ever watch it, you'll find out that Peter Jackson, not so great at tightening things up, much better at just kind of extending <laughs> sequences and keeping them going. There's actually, there was a scene that was supposed to be in the original, I guess, that has all these insects um, but they couldn't afford to do it. So, of course, Peter Jackson, being gross and loving insects and horrible things, of course, put that in his movie. Uh, but it's it's interesting that we talked about some people don't like all the extended sequences with all these other creatures. That there's actually – it was supposed to be longer. <laughs> there's supposed to be even yeah. more. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think my favorite thing about the Empire State Building scene is the actual – is the is the kind of plane sequence. I think I think that stuff really works. Not so much the kind of King Kong on the Empire State Building, but giving it this – I think you get – that's the one moment where you feel maybe the tiniest bit of empathy where he can't he's – in a, he's in a foreign place. He's in a situation where he is not the king and he can't control the situation. And I think you get a little bit of that fear for him because even though, even though King Kong is a monster and is doing some pretty terrible things, I think when you look at him in the jungle fighting all these creatures, he's the one you're rooting for. Yeah, I think the empathy for – King Kong comes from him being kidnapped and brought. I mean, right. he doesn't deserve to have uh, Fei Rei 
you know, I so I don't think like, oh, poor you. No, she won't love you back. But I definitely think like, well, what the hell, man? You're not supposed to be in New York. Like, just right. leave him, poor guy. I mean, think about it. literally these these invaders show up in your country. Um, they they drug you, <laughs> they manacle you, and then they put you on a boat and bring you back. And now that I'm saying this out loud, this racially is really awful. You know, and they bring you back to New York <laughs> and parade you around like eighth wonder of the world. Isn't this yeah. great? And I think that's – it's a weird moment for me when you first get back to New York and they show the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, Ann and Jack are in love and Carl Denham is famous again and everything's great. But you start thinking like, don't any of you feel bad for this creature? Like this is – even if you don't think, yeah. oh, it's not a human. It doesn't feel like we do. Like you still – you still captured it and you're putting it on display in a place where everyone will just ogle it. I can't fathom not having at least a little bit of empathy in that moment. And it doesn't seem like any of those three characters really do. No. Can you imagine today, though? Like there would be so many protests oh, about it. PETA would but come out guns just... blazing. It would be horrible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that that scene always bugged me a little bit. And of course, there's this weird jump in time, too. And I think probably because of special effects, we don't see, you know, Kong being put on the boat. We don't see the boat trip home. Apparently, it's just like the most uneventful trip home ever. They're just like, yeah, and then we went in a straight line. And now we're back in New York. Everything's fine. Wouldn't it be great if uh, if they had scenes like that and Kong woke up and was just terrorizing the boat? Like, right. Oh, that boat would be fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Of course, we've, we talked about Jurassic Park already, and there's in one of the Jurassic Park sequels, there's kind of a sequence like that, where they try and bring a T-Rex back, and it's on a boat, and unfortunately it wakes up and wreaks havoc on this boat. And, and that actually made me think of, like, this, you know, like, you don't know, like, you drugged him, right? But you don't know what it takes to drug this creature you've never seen and how big it is. Like, I can't believe mm-hmm. that it would just have a nice, peaceful nap all the way back to New York and nothing would ever happen, you know, but. Well, if it's 25 minutes away, maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe it is a really <laughs> short trip. You're right. We have yeah. no idea. Maybe that's the advantage to not covering the the process of time in these movies yeah. is no one can say, oh, well, that wouldn't have happened because we don't know how far it is, you know, but yeah, I think exactly. you're right. Something you brought up earlier is really sticking with me, like this idea of discovering something new. And there's a scene in in the kind of map room where they're kind of talking about, OK, we're here. OK, now we're going to go to this this place in the middle of the map. And they're like, nothing's there. So I, I like the idea that back in the 1930s, there's this idea that we could find that kind of stuff. And now it's just like, no, nah, we've. Everything's topographically taken care of, you know, it's it's not interesting anymore. And I think that's why movies about space travel got much more popular because, like, that's an area we can never discover all of because it's so vast. And I think in a lot of ways, yeah. like, it's taken over what the sea used to be. Like, that used to be our go-to for exploration. Yeah, and I think humanity has, like, a natural drive to discover and create. And it just makes sense. I mean... Like I said, I just I'm so jealous that people lived at a time where that was possible. And now we have to find other ways to discover things. Yeah. So absolutely. All right. So let's move on to our favorite scene. So what's one of your favorite scenes from King Kong? Um, I really like when John saves uh, Anne from Kong when mm-hmm. they're kind of rappelling down the cliff mm-hmm. on a vine. Yeah. And Kong is just pulling it up. I remember thinking like. He's pulling a long time. They must have cut pretty far down. But I remember feeling like kind of stressed. When are they going to appear? Yeah, I loved it with the pterodactyl and everything. Yeah. Mm, That clip was good. I also think that that scene does a really great job of, like we talked about, like showing scale. 
like just showing yeah. how big Kong is compared to everything else on this island. You understand why he is the king of this place. And there's I think that movie does a good job of always making our main characters feel at risk. There's never a moment where it feels safe. Like, you know, honestly, I think when I first watched this, like, I didn't know what was going to happen to Anne. I didn't know what was going to happen to Jack or Carl. Like, at any moment, like, because he just keeps eating people. Like, you're just like, okay, who's next? And I think the movie also does a great job. Granted, the people that die are pretty disposable in this movie. Yes. Uh, But they do a good job of putting enough people in his way to make him seem extra fearsome like not even just the the eating of people because that definitely can look comical for sure and robotic yeah uh, but there's a bunch of scenes where he gets he throws people and they drop to their deaths and it looks pretty brutal like there's some moments yeah. even now watching it where i'm like oh man yeah he's not coming back from that like that is that is game over for that particular character so i like that the movie constantly gives us this fear which is necessary like on on the log particularly all the people just falling off like sacks of flour. Yes. I I remember thinking like wow, this look at those dummies fall, but also like <laughs> that's a long way down. Yes. Or um I think the best part is that Kong wasn't the only threat in the jungle. Yep. You know, once they got in there suddenly like when the brontosaurus kind of comes out of the water, mm-hmm. I remember getting so excited and he he's picking people up and flinging them around and I right. thought this well, this is exciting. Yes. <laughs> or when Kong's kind of like reaching underneath the cliff with mm-hmm. his hand trying to get him and he's stabbing him. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was great. Yeah. And I think you can actually see like kind of a lot of um, a lot of horror tropes here as well. Like that yeah. scene you brought up, like with this this monstrous creature, like kind of fumbling around and trying to find someone who's hidden, you know, in a log or a locker somewhere like this is something we see over and over again that probably I mean, I don't know for sure, but I can't imagine that this happened a lot before 1933 in film. So it's kind of yeah. cool to see this this process. And that's something that's something that's still scary in movies, even now. Where like someone is hidden and they think they're safe and all of a sudden the killer or the monster emerges on the other side and is is trying to get them and is just out of reach. And Kong has this kind of adorable nature to him, especially when he's reaching down and uh, every time he gets stabbed, he brings his hand and just like, looks oh, at it. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of quizzically. I thought, oh, that's adorable. <laughs> like he's never been hurt before. Like this is, yeah, this is very exactly. new for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the dinosaurs were more scary, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was... I was so shocked by the dinosaurs. Like, I couldn't get over it. I kept saying, like, why didn't anyone tell me there was dinosaurs? Like, uh, so then when I was watching the special features, I learned that um, the director had made a movie or started making a movie called Creation uh, Mm. with all of these dinosaurs in it. And he'd already made a bunch of these puppets. And so by this time, he thought, well, I might as well use them. So he just sort of threw them them in in there. (laughs) Yeah. And just like used a lot of, I think there was four minutes of uh, film from creation and he just used storyboards it's like well we were going to have a dinosaur kind of shaking people off a log let's just make the monkey do it um i thought it was kind of a what's the word i'm looking for resourceful mm-hmm. that he's like i had all these great ideas and half completed projects let's just mash them all together on this island nobody's been there it makes sense that they're, <laughs> nobody they're, knows have all these type of yeah yeah, and I think th- I think that's an interesting point in the it kind of takes away <laughs> it sounds funny but it takes away the need for logic on this island. Like like we know and who knows I don't know what they knew in 1933 about dinosaurs but we know some of these uh some of these dinosaurs weren't 
you know, they weren't uh, carnivores. They weren't particularly vicious. But in this, the brontosaurus, yeah. like, eating people and throwing people around, it still kind of works. Um, and I think it works because we talked about this idea of exploration, this idea of mystery. And so everything on this island, no matter what happens, you can kind of explain away that, like, okay, well, this place has been hidden away for centuries upon centuries. And we don't get to say, well, it, things aren't like that because this is totally new. It reminded me of Swiss Family Robinson, actually. Okay. When they go to the island, there's all these different types of animals there that would never be on the same island. And they just sort of use it like, well, it's a mystery. We don't know where we are. <laughs> I thought it was great. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, most of my favorite scenes I think we've already talked about. We talked about the screen test, which I think is the one moment in the movie uh, with Anne where you, you're bonded to her. Like, and, mm-hmm. it, and of course, and it's interesting that that whole moment is totally false. It's totally put upon uh, by the director and by her. But I think, you know, all her interactions with, you know, with the love of her life, supposedly like that, that stuff doesn't work for me much. Like I have to kind of brush it aside. But that screen test like is a really impressive moment for her as an actress. And then we have the Kong versus T-Rex, which I think we've talked about plenty. But it's it's the moment that will pretty much always, always stick with me. And I think the mm-hmm. movie in general, just from a scene perspective, does a really great job. At, it would be very easy for with all these action sequences for it to it's interesting when a movie is all action, it can actually become boring and just be like, oh, well, there's, oh, yeah. there's another action sequence. Uh, I guess we're crashing this car or blowing this building up, uh, whatever. Yeah, it's my least favorite genre because I, I, it just puts me to sleep when there's all this action. Yeah. And I think this movie does a good job at, at kind of slowly ratcheting up the tension and never really feels boring. Like I don't even think in terms – of action sequences, I don't think there's a huge weak link. Like, even the scene where Kong is rampaging through the city and, like, destroying the train, like, it's a little bit scary, like, that sequence, because I like that they show the inside of the train and show it the effect it has on the people rather than just showing the special effect of the train and Kong, because you start thinking, like, oh, man, imagine being in that situation, and I think that stuff all works. Yeah, that's something I thought when he was climbing the building and he just reached in for the woman and then was like, oh, that's not the one I want and just dropped her. Right. I remember thinking, can you imagine just being woken up? uh, You're in the hand of a gorilla and then you're dead. Yeah. (laughs) And the ultimate rejection, right? Like not only are you (laughs) are you captured by this gorilla? He's like, nah, not good enough. It's not Ann Darrow. (laughs) She's not blonde. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I think actually now that you bring that up, that is the one moment that still I think will always be laughable to me with Kong outside of that window, like the big eyes and the, the hand reaching in. Like yeah. that is the part where I'm like, oh, God, we got to stop this. Like we got to we got to end this movie because this is getting to be a little much. And I and I see what they're trying to get across in those moments like that, that serious fear that he could just come through this building and that kind of works but just something about the expression on his face and the almost comical way this woman dies is a little like okay we gotta we gotta move on for sure yeah i think it's extra funny too because it reminds me of early i think 90s video game rampage where you yes. play Kong. yes and you'd climb <laughs> the buildings and eat the people and smash them and it was sort of just like a mindless game so that was the only introduction i had to kong before and when that started happening i thought oh man i remember that game like i kind of just want to play it and it <laughs> caught that feeling that kind of like meaninglessness like yeah, right? he's just gonna kill people yeah absolutely yeah. all right um so before we jump to the theme uh did you enjoy watching the movie are you glad you finally saw king kong 
Yeah, I mean, mostly for the cred. Now I can just say Yeah, I've seen it. So <laughs> get off my back. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we picked the theme Good. of grandiosity. And to me, I think the, the person who inhabits this most is the character of Carl Denham. Like he he's constantly kind of putting people in danger and putting himself and his own career kind of above everyone else. So what did you think of the theme of grandiosity? Did you think it played in here? Um. Yes. When you sent me the email with the theme, I actually started laughing uh, because um, I have a tendency for grandiosity. So I thought, well, that's perfect. We're going to talk about psychology. Of course it will apply. Um, <laughs> and immediately I thought of uh, Denim for sure, because it's obvious that he he believes that he is important enough and that his goals are important enough that everybody else is expendable. And and that scene from him saying like, well, we need a girl. Let's. He goes down to the soup kitchen. He sees a woman's paint. He likes the look in her eye. And then he's like, I got a job for you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. and she's just like, okay. And all the men, like I said, they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't care. Like he gets there once they escape and and uh, rescue and they're like, we're gonna leave now, right? And he's like, we're gonna use her as bait. Right. Like it's just. Uh, it's just so gross to watch it happen, but it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not only uses her as bait, but I think uses her and Jack's relationship as bait. Like he knows Jack is going to go after her no matter what. So putting her in danger actually guarantees him his shots and, and, and what he needs from the situation. And he, you know, there's a lot of stuff about grandiosity, about it, the person exaggerating their talent and their achievements. And I think this is the danger when you have someone who is very accomplished, who also has this, uh, this tendency towards grandiosity, because in this situation, and you see it from the beginning of the movie, no one will disagree with him. They're just like, okay, yep. well, you're Carl Denham, so you must know what you're talking about. And they set that they set that up from that first conversation about Denham. So then the rest of the movie, I think it's it puts the audience in this awkward position because we don't know him and we start seeing some of the things he's doing and we're kind of offended by his actions, but everyone else just goes along with it. Which which I think if you talk about people who are who have narcissistic personality disorder or who act on their grandiosity a lot, it can be really awkward from an outside perspective viewing this and, and seeing, because a lot of people with grandiosity are also really charming. That's how they get away mm -hmm. with doing some of these things. So it can be, I think it can be awkward for us to watch denim. I think that's why as I was watching this, I was like, is this a totally unlikable character? Like, this is really hard for yeah, me to get past. We, we're not under his spell, but we right. have to assume that other people are. Um, and, I don't know. I think um, career people like a director or a writer or an actress, whatever, uh, will very likely lean into grandiosity. Like, I think that just sort of comes with being a creative person. Um, so I was really interested in the theme and I thought, well, if you have a trait, sometimes you can use it for good, right? Mm -hmm. Like you've got to combat kind of the negativity of whatever trait you're struggling with, grandiosity, whatever. So I thought, well, how does somebody combat that kind of instinct? Mm -hmm. And my idea here is um, you have to combat it with openness and honesty, because I think what what grandiosity is about is believing that you are better or smarter or deeper than somebody else that you can't you can't connect with anybody. So you sort of like hold on to that, like, well, I'm special. That's why I'm not like anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when we 
we share with others openly in meaningful ways when we're vulnerable uh, and put something out there that's almost like like a beacon for others who are similar to connect to. And, and in that way, we can't believe that we're superior or that our experiences are unlike anybody other, any, sorry, any others. Um, and I think that movies ironically do this in a really good way mm-hmm. because they show us the depth of humanity. So, I mean, I think everybody has watched a movie and thought, oh, I'm like that character mm-hmm. or I have similar traits. I'm not alone. And yeah. I think that's the best way to uh, combat that. Yeah, I think wow, that's a really great point. And I think there's there's a couple things there. Uh one, I think that openness is really important. Also, like one of the big problems with grandiosity is this general kind of lack of empathy, the lack of being able to see things from other perspectives. And that's something you could actually <laughs> practice. You can practice empathy. There are ways to do it. But you brought up movies and it made me think like one, not only do can we see ourselves in movies, but Uh, Roger Ebert had this really famous quote about movies being empathy machines that putting us in the perspective of other people and understanding that we're different, but that doesn't mean we can't understand one another and we can't care about one another. So I think that's, you know, movies and anything, really any kind of art is a really good way to combat that. Absolutely. And I think too, in some cases, movies will show us a caricature of personality traits that we maybe don't like. Um, so they can teach us or warn us, like you can watch denim and think, oh, I have that same drive to to be noticed and to be special. But obviously, I shouldn't go to the lengths that this man went to to right. achieve my dreams. There's better ways. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. All right. So the last thing for us to talk about is the new movie that's coming out. So, of course, um, I was wholly unoriginal when this movie was coming out. I found out Kong Skull Island was going to come out. So I thought, let's just do the first King Kong because I really like that movie and I want to talk about it. Um, so are you excited about Kong Skull Island coming out uh, coming out in March? Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't even paying attention. Um, I don't watch trailers in general, so I've, mm-hmm. I haven't seen a trailer for it, but I've been hearing a lot of buzz. But now that I've seen this one, I think I'm going to watch it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've done good in the world. That's <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> so this movie to me, like, uh, so there's always, there's usually one movie a year that is subjectively not a very good movie and I will absolutely adore like, I'll know it's bad. Like, it's the guilty pleasure. This screams guilty pleasure to me. Like, there's something about it. Like, the only thing I'm really worried about, honestly, is Tom Hiddleston uh, in this main role. I like Tom Hiddleston a lot, uh, but he's not uh, He's not that, that stereotypical gruff action hero leading man. That's not his – that's not his uh his best role. Like he's really good in that kind of either like classy or a little bit silly leading man role. And it reminds me of when uh, a while ago they made a sequel to the Predator movie called Predators and Adrian Brody was playing this like very tough warrior archetype and I was like, yeah, this doesn't work for me. Like I can't Yeah, I just had to uh, look him up and I thought the first thing I thought was like, oh, he's too skinny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Everything else about this looks fun. I mean, John Goodman is always great. Uh, John C. Riley is probably a little bit over the top, as he usually is. I really like Brie Larson. I like yeah. Sam Jackson. The effects look pretty incredible. Uh, and say what you will about the movie of Warcraft that came out this year, which is not very good. Uh, Toby Kebbell, who played the orc in that, um, who's obviously very good at this kind of motion capture work. 
he's going to be playing King Kong. So I'm excited for it. I, I, I want to repeat, I do not think this is going to be a good movie, but I think I'm going to enjoy every last second of it. <laughs> like That's kind of the way that's I look at fair. Kong Skull Island. I'm just interested, having not seen anything between now, like I've just seen the original, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to go to this 2017. I want to see the difference between them without knowing kind of the missteps along the way. So it'll be fun. Yeah, I'm actually really, I'm going to contact you. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think of 2017's <laughs> version of Kong as opposed to 1933's. I think that'll be, yeah, because you're coming from a totally different perspective. I've seen all the Kong movies. I've watched, you know, many of them multiple times. So it's definitely a very different perspective. So I'll be interested to hear what you think. All right. Uh, so before we leave, one more time, why don't you tell people how to reach you or audiences everywhere online? Uh, you can find my writing at audienceseverywhere.net and I'm on Twitter at sexbz. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. One, you can go on Twitter and find me at PC Case Study, and I'm sure to interact with you. Or you can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like the True Bromance Film Podcast and War Machine vs. War Horse. But if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can actually donate to the show on a per-episode basis and get some really cool rewards while you're at it. So the next time you hear my voice, we will be doing a new release episode on Kong Skull Island. Hopefully Mike will have returned safely from Ireland at that point, and we can do that new release review. All right, so until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. One day while Kong was sleeping on his back, a Tyrannosaurus launched a sneak attack. How did? How would you get Jessica Lang to do this? Well, she and I uh, were both on uh, on uh, Jessica and I were both on FX for a lot of years, and so we would be at the Golden Globes and sit at the same table. And I like talking to her because she was in King Kong's hand, and she's really <laughs> very cool. She was very That's few right. people. Her and Naomi Watts, and the first one, uh, Jambi Clamper Chapper, I think her name was. Uh, I don't know. You're gonna guess. Jambi Clamper Chapper. Yeah, yeah she back didn't in do the much. '30's, Jambi yeah, Clamper yeah, yeah. Chapper oh, Clamper. Sure, Chapper Clamper. <laughs> Unbelievable. Then the first King Kong. Yeah. That was the first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Silent. Yeah. That's, no, right. no That's why lines. nobody knew her name. No one knew her name, yeah. Because it was didn't. silent. Yeah, they didn't tell it. They gave her that stage. That's right. There was no sound then in the on the earth. On earth. That's right. Yeah, it was weird. more sound effects. Her, right. her name was... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any anyway, sense. Anyway, no. Uh, but it was... There was no sound there. Yeah, there's no sound. It's not like there was no talking. It's not like the movies had, like, loads of sound, but nobody spoke. I didn't th- overthink the joke, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, her, her, her name was... Uh... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, cut it. Okay, good. All right, you're going to cut this part out, so go no, ahead. No, no, I won't. I won't. I'm leaving this in, please. Yeah, we got to... Whoever failed to give it, be correct. No creature crossed his path and lived for long. His name, so legend tells us, was 